The South is woven into the landscape of my mind so deeply that whatever is bad and good of it, I miss like a physical pain. If the South misses me, I cannot tell. I was angry with my mother the night that she died. Angry because I had been made to feel guilty, frustrated, and helpless. Guilty because her life seemed to me a form of undeserved hell. Frustrated and helpless because she would not change it according to my dictates. The drive to the hospital is etched in my memory. The flat, tarry pavement, a straight stretch down Highway 17, the newly settled dark riding softly on the treetops and sandy soil. I think of that drive as the last normal moment before the slow, heart-nailing realization that the things I took for granted, the things everyone takes for granted, did not hold true. But I did not look, then, to find treachery among my own. You don't look for bloodstains or double-bolt the doors when you know it's only family coming. There is a softness in the night when full dark comes over Beaufort. I notice it this night, as I notice everything. The moss in the trees beneath the beam of my headlights. The unreal sense I have that tonight is not really happening. I feel I am drifting through a dream. I know that my mother is dying. I turn the radio off because it only plays one station, 98.1 The Bull which doesn't seem like the right kind of music for a time like this. I crank down the window. Big Mama is my Ford pickup, and as much as it is possible to love an automobile, I love Big Mama. A 1987 F-150, black with gray trim, oak side rails installed in the back so I can carry furniture, which I refinish and sell for a living. It's a stick shift with gray vinyl seats that are murder in the summer sun. My air conditioner only blows hot air. Wear shorts on hot days and you will leave a layer of burnt hide on my upholstery, which is ripped on the passenger's side, exposing dirty yellow foam. What I do have is a 350 V8 engine, a scratched-up trailer hitch, and huge chrome side mirrors so I can pull a trailer if I have a lot of pieces to move. There's no door on the glove compartment, which is stuffed with some things I remember putting there and some things I don't. The heater works and the tires are Michelin, though they need to be rotated. Big Mama gets ten miles to the gallon and holds forty, and between the seat and the back is a convenient open space that right now is cluttered with an old flannel work shirt, a pair of work gloves, some balled-up maps, and a tarp. I don't owe any money on this truck. The Beaufort Hospital parking lot is nearly empty. I put Big Mama in park and open the heavy door, which creaks no matter how much I oil it. A Coke can rolls off the gritty black floorboard and hits the pavement with a clank. I'm out in a heartbeat, grabbing the Coke can and looking over my shoulder to check if anyone has seen and disapproved. One of the realities of small-town life. I hate to be thought of as trashy. But I am alone in the parking lot, 34 feet from the emergency entrance where my mother has been brought in, heart-stilled and cyanotic. It is Sunday night, 
and the good people of Beaufort are tucked in front of their television sets, boats docked, beer or highball in hand, lazing through the last dark hours of their weekend. The first person I see in the hospital is my father, Fielding Smallwood. He has retired from the Marine Corps and works in a bank as a loan officer, lending money to good old boys and retired Marine officers. Active enlisted men cannot afford the rates. He is wearing, as always, his off-duty, off-work jogging suit uniform. He has two of them, the soft gray cotton with blue piping, and the one I hate, a navy blue polyester ensemble that has a slippery look and makes raspy noises whenever he moves. He is wearing the gray cotton one. We look each other over, my father and I, bristling like territorial dogs, and neither of us likes what we see. I have worn my high-heeled black boots and slung my black leather jacket over my shoulder for effect because I know I will need to be tough. I am wearing my favorite 501 Levi's and my lavender T-shirt because it is my lucky T-shirt and lavender is Mama's favorite color. My father is compactly built, muscles running to fat, his exposed flesh raw from the freckled burn he maintains religiously on the golf course. His crew cut is a yellow and gray, short and spiky, and I know he is incensed that his haircut is back in style. He puts a hand toward me but stops when he sees my frown. Georgie, those things I said on the phone. His face strains for sincerity. It looks real enough. To give the man his due, he probably is sorry. That is the tragedy of men like my father. I don't know why I screamed at you like that, sugar. I was upset about your mama, and I just took it out on you. It's okay, Daddy, forget it. But it is not okay, and my distance ensures he knows it. I was, after all, raised by this man, and I don't accept excuses any more than he does. Too much alike, my mother used to say, an observation that chills me. What is it, Daddy? A heart attack or a stroke? They're not sure. I lean against the wall and fold my arms. I am waiting for an explanation. My father motions to a chair and I ignore him. This puts him in a bind. He cannot sit down unless I do and I have no intention of settling in. As soon as I am up to date, I will storm the doors to find Mama. He sits anyway, and I am as shocked by this breach of etiquette as I was by his vicious and unprovoked attack over the phone, my father's gentle way of breaking the news. His face takes on the distanced air of a man looking inward. She went to bed around, oh, I guess four o'clock. He looks up to make sure I get the message. Mama had been depressed. When Mama is depressed, which is often, she goes to bed, pulls the covers over her head, and listens to country music on the radio. Mama has a crush on Garth Brooks. I checked on her around 4.35, and she was fine, sleeping. I guess she took a pill. I checked again at 5.05, and she was okay. I checked her again at 5.30, and again at 6.00. 6.30 she was fine, and at 7 I went in, and Georgie, my father rubs a meaty hand over his eyes, voice going up an octave and a half, 
She was blue. She wasn't breathing, and she was blue. I cannot help myself. I lean down and hug my father, who is as close to unraveled as I have ever seen him. You want a cup of coffee or anything, Daddy? No, sugar. I just finished a cup. His eyes are wetly grateful, and he clearly feels forgiven. Deep in my heart, I keep hold of my grudge. It is crowded in my personal grudge chamber. I have hostilities left over from kindergarten. Did Mama feel bad? Did she complain or, or say anything at all? He shakes his head, eyes going narrow. The only thing she said was last week. She said she'd seen her Mama and Daddy sitting beside her on the bed. She told me, I say, fiddling with the zipper on my jacket. Mama, so practical and down-to-earth, occasionally did come up with these kinds of comments. Speaking so casually, you just kind of let it go. Still, it is common knowledge in the South that your dead relatives will come for you when you die. Where are you going, Georgie? I want to see Mama and tell her to stay away from the light. Don't make jokes, Georgie. And they said we can't see her right now. They can say all they want. Heading toward desks, nurses, swing doors, and officialdom, I catch his look of approval out of the corner of my eye. And I wonder why he isn't storming the doors himself. His litany of time checks on my mother echoes in my head, and I have my first moment of nearly incomprehensible suspicion. A year from now, I will imagine going back in time and catching that girl I was.